You've done a little traveling around the U.S. and even into countries abroad, and you are somewhat of a sightseer when you do that traveling, going into cities or capitals or things of that kind. What do you notice? You might notice a lot of different things. The grand buildings, the civic arena, perhaps some sports places. But if you keep on looking around, at some point you'll probably notice a tomb or some memorial to some famous citizen of that city or that state or that country. For example, if you go to Springfield, Illinois, you can find the grave or the tomb of Abraham Lincoln. If you go to Mount Vernon, New York, you will find the tomb of George Washington. You get to go to Paris sometime, be sure to stop by the tomb of Napoleon Bonaparte at Les Invalides. There's just something about great people or people that are considered great that the the country or the locality wants to honor them. If you're really into this, you have no better place to go than Westminster Abbey. The British have collected a lot of people in that one place. Not only Elizabeth I, the last Tudor uh, reigning monarch of the 16th century, but also men of letters like Samuel Johnson, scientists like Isaac Newton, even the odd actor or two. What is it about wanting to memorialize someone? What is it about when that great person, whatever that person of renown is, renown is, when they die, we want to build something for them? Part of it is we want to honor them. We want to, yeah, primarily honor them and have a place to go visit. But one of the things that each of those locations and any other place that you might visit has in common is that everybody who is honored, their remains are still in that tomb. They're still in that mausoleum. They're still in that place. And that makes the text that Cindy just read, our gospel text, all the more remarkable because it is a text about someone who's no longer in a tomb. But everybody expected him to be there. If you, look, if you listen to the story, you actually listen to the account, it says that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, women took spices that they prepared and went to the tomb. But they found the stone rolled away. They do not find Jesus in the tomb. They do not find the dead body that they expected to be there. They had seen him crucified just three days earlier. And so he would be logically in that place. But when they go to prepare the body, they, don't, they, they meet two men who are gleaming in their appearance, which is a somewhat poetic way of saying that they would be what we call angels. And these men say to them, why look for the living among the dead? That is such a great question. Why look for the living among the dead? Meaning he's not here. They say he's not here. He is risen. And then they say, remember how he told you, you his followers, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And it says the women remembered his words. There is so much that the author, that Luke wants us to know, and this account is repeated in the other Gospels in certain variations. But what is more than remarkable for us what is absolutely significant, what is stand, 
stands out in all of history is that a person who was dead was raised to life, no longer in the grave. And what does that mean? I mean, if you're sort of a, a theologically oriented person, man, you know that there's been whole books, volumes, sermons preached on this. But I'd like to make it a little bit more conversational. So, for example, if we could grab a coffee together, what, what, what might we talk about here in terms of what this passage is saying? What, what is being revealed? I think there's a few things that I'll buy the coffee, you come, we'll start the conversation. First thing is, like, Jesus is alive. That's a big thing. Why is that a big thing? The second thing is that Jesus is actually, he, as, as once he's alive, he actually goes and looks for his followers. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't go immediately to heaven. He's looking for them, and he's looking for us. And finally, in the New Testament reading that was read, Paul talks about what that means, how we actually stay connected with him, who was raised from the dead, how we stay connected with him who loves and, and pursues us out of that love. That's what I want to spend our time on this afternoon. So, we're having our first mocha with almond milk. And, and when you hear the word gospel, when you hear the term good news, what is the good news about the fact that Jesus is alive? I'm glad you asked. The great news, the really good news about the fact that Jesus is alive is that he has defeated all that the enemy could throw against him. This, this is the final showdown, if you will, between Christ and our enemy, what Scripture calls the devil or Satan. It is this idea, it is he, Satan is one who comes against all the goodness of God's creation. And he comes against us as, as the very good creation. Scripture says that we who have been made, we people, are God's very good creation. And God loves us in a way that we long to know more about. And the best the way that we can actually understand that love is through the sacrifice that Jesus goes through on our behalf. Jesus has gone through that sacrifice quite clearly. He's been totally humiliated in carrying the cross. It was, such an, it was an instrument of torturous death. So, so bad was it that Romans restricted it only for non-Roman people, people that weren't citizens. And it was a public humiliation. It was meant to shame the person as much as possibly could be done and then to have them publicly and slowly killed. And the enemy brings all this through the Romans and through the Jewish leaders. All of them have an interest in seeing Jesus die. But the victory is this, that Jesus takes everything that they threw against him, and he actually uses it, he actually weaves it as part of his plan. He knew all that would happen, and he used that to bring the final victory. And what's that victory? The victory is over sin. This, this idea that, that Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf because we are apart from God our Father. We are apart from the one who gives us life. We are apart from the one that truly loves us in a way that we were made to be loved. And we are apart because of things that we've done, because of a nature that's broken. And the enemy just fans that into flame and keeps getting us distracted. And Jesus says, you don't have a way back, but I will make a way for you. And I will do that by giving myself in your place. 
and I will do that. And he tells his disciples, and this is what the angels remind the women who come to the grave. He said, remember what he said. He said that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. That's part of God's plan. Be crucified. That's part of God's plan. And be raised on the third day. That is part of God's plan. And in that last part, part three, comes the victory. Comes the victory over death. And so if Jesus is raised from the dead, the first fruits of resurrection, which is why we call this Resurrection Sunday, that is an encouragement to us because we too have that same hope of being resurrected. Paul describes it in, when he writes in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, where, death is your victor- where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He says, the last enemy that we face that keeps us from God is death. And Christ has overcome that by his death. And his resurrection has proven that. There is nothing that can hold Christ down, nothing that can keep him away, nothing that can keep us away from God now. And so his death is necessary, but his resurrection is also necessary to confirm that and to show that victory has been won. That's why we sing songs with that theme of victory. Now, we know this, don't we? We know that in the depths of our being, we were not made to die. Now, we may have grown comfortable with it. We, we know that death is a part of life. We have our own ways of sort of coping. But from time to time, every now and again, it, things come into our minds to remind us of just how tentative life is. There's times where we, some of us might have a health scare and you think, oh, wow, well, I wasn't planning on that. Or somebody that you know that's younger than you, you get the news that they've, they've died. And you think, man, I think I'm young and they were younger. We just naturally recoil against this idea of death. It's, it's foreign to us. Henry Nouwen wrote a letter to his father. Some of you know him, a Catholic priest now gone to glory. And at the, when his mother passed away, he started to write his dad letters. He and his father had become estranged over the years, don't know all the reasons why. But he began to write, and he wrote this. He says, I, as I reflect on mother's death, something that I could not see as clearly before is now becoming more visible to me. It is that death does not belong to God. God did not create death. God does not want death. God does not desire death for us. In God, there is no death. God is a God of life. He is a God of the living and not the dead. We've been made to live. There is just that thing in us that desires to want to, to, to live. Sometimes our pride can say, well, this is a cause worth dying for. Sometimes it is if it's of Christ, but oftentimes it's of our own pride. But we've been made to live. And Jesus says, I know that's how I made you. And the only way you can live is to be living in me. So the fact that Jesus is alive means that death, our greatest enemy, the one that we have no control over, all of us, unless Christ comes, will die. But that death is not final. And we know it's not final because Jesus has been raised from the grave. He is the hope that we have. He goes before us into the heavenlies. That's the first thing I would share. I like coffee, so I'm going to get another round. And then we're going to talk about how God seeks after us. Because in that text, what happens? It says, then they remembered his words, the women, and they go back 
from the tomb. And they tell all these things to the 11, to the disciples that are in Jerusalem hiding. Mark's text tells us that actually the, one of the angels says, go to the disciples and Peter and tell them that Jesus will, is going ahead of them in Galilee. And you are to follow and meet him in Galilee. So the Lord is, is the one who seeks after us. He doesn't go right into glory. He's not going up to some spiritual Mount Rushmore where he can just be up there to be adored and glorified. But he's coming to be with us before he goes. He seeks after us. He wants the disciples to get out of Jerusalem, out of the fear that has consumed them, and rightly so. They have seen death firsthand. Their, their dreams were absolutely shattered. They don't know what to make of it. And he is the loving Lord who comes and wants to uh, encourage them, wants to infuse them. John says he'll breathe his Holy Spirit on them. He says, receive my spirit. Later on when he goes, he will send his spirit in Pentecost. But right now he just wants to regroup them and say that I am still with you and I still have an assignment for you. He wants to be with them. But if he was calling us forward, would we go? Would we want to meet him in Galilee? He calls us today in so many ways. Where, where do we sense we're sort of hanging back from that call a little bit? I wonder. I think as Jesus is raised from the dead, he shows that he is God and there, new, there are no other gods. And yet I think sometimes what holds us back are our own gods, our own little idols, the things that we want to bring along with us. Man, these are getting heavy. I hope I can keep up with you, Lord. Like, you might want to let some of those go. Those counterfeit gods. This is what Tim Keller calls them. He says, a counterfeit God, he wrote a book on it. It's excellent if you are uh, focused on how you can kind of shed some of the things that, that bind you, things that are often on your mind much more than perhaps who Christ is and what he's doing. Here's, here's what Keller says. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It can be a family or children or a career, or making money, or achievement, and critical acclaim, or saving face, or social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, or your beauty and your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. Now, has Keller left anybody out here from that audience at this point? Did you, did you hear your name kind of called when, when I read that? I probably have way too many check boxes uh, at this point. But we do have these gods, and the trouble, the reason that they're counterfeit is they promise life, but they don't bring it. Instead, they bring death. They promise a certain freedom, but instead they bring a, a bondage. They, they are controlling. We think we're in charge, but they are really in charge. This is why the Lord wants us to be freed from those. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, part of the, the hope that's inherent in this is that we see the love of God in action and we hear that love of God calling us to connect with him, not to be afraid, not to somehow think he's going to take all the good stuff away and just leave us with heartache and misery and, and those kinds of things. Man, it's hard being a follower of Jesus. That's frankly it's sort of the Christian culture I grew up in. Kind of the tougher it was, the more of a saint you were. There's some truth in that, but that, that's a little hard for a young mind at times. There, it was missing the joy. It was missing the, the, the laughter. It was missing the love and the experience of who God is. So if you're lagging behind, I, I want to say this. 
be encouraged that the Lord is looking out for you. He's looking out for me. He's wanting us to come and, and to, to pick up our pace a little bit, not, no longer hang back because we think that we have something better than actually following him. Like, don't hang back. Go forward. Put, put the pedal on sprint. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about a guy named Dave Waddle. So some in my generation, you'll know that name. I, had a, uh, I was thinking about him because my, I had a geometry teacher in high school named Colonel Gilbert who would always invoke Dave Waddle. Dave Waddle, if you don't know, was an Olympic track runner. He ran the 800. That was his specialty in the 70s. He was renowned for a couple things. The first was he had this ropey old like golf cap that he ran in. No lie. It looked like he just sort of got it at a secondhand store, had you know, the golf clubs crossed in the front. But he ran in that before people ran in hats. And the other thing, more signature to him, is that he would always be way in the back of the 800. That's only two laps around the track. You can't be far back for far long before you're going to just flat out lose. But he would be back there in the qualifying heats, and in, he actually wins the gold medal, spoiler alert, wins the gold medal in the 1972 Olympics. But he is so far off the back that the, the, the sympathetic announcers are like, you know, he's got to pick it up. And he, he, he's, he just starts picking it up, and he passes one guy. And then the next, when, when Waddle's talking about the race, he, he was saying, man, I hope I can get third. But he just busts it out, and he ends up getting the, the favored runner at the tape. And so Colonel Gilbert would say, you know, you may not have turned in many assignments. You, you may have bombed the uh, midterm. You may hate geometry. I'm like, check, 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 check. But... You could be like Dave Waddle. You can still ace this class. You can still come from behind. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for Colonel Gilbert. But that's our Lord, too. Doesn't matter in terms of the past, because he's covered that. What matters is where we find him now. And are we going to lead? Are we going to follow his leading? Because he is leading us to a place of life and a place of love. The third thing I would say, and I'm, I'm not ordering any more coffees, but the third thing I would say is this, that as he died for us and was raised to life, that we don't have to suffer death. As he calls us to follow him, he is always with us in that mystical way. There, Colossians says this that was read earlier. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ. When he who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. How do I make sure I don't keep running after counterfeit gods? By focusing my heart, which is my decision-making, my will, my affections, on the Lord who is above. By focusing my mind on those things and not getting caught up in the amusements and the sort of vicissitudes of life, as fun as they can be at times. But to say, Lord, I want my heart set on you. I want my mind set on you. My life that you have promised that you will one day resurrect me. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope of the Christian. That you will, just as you were raised from the dead, you will raise me from the dead. And my life, that life that I look forward to, is hidden with you. 
Forgive me, Father, for the times that I just run after things of this world. They will never satisfy. Forgive me, Lord, that I fail to see how much you love me or think that the hardships and challenges that I'm going through, the issues I'm facing or the, those things that I can remember you know, were way back even in my childhood, those are coming up. All that stuff, Lord, thank you that those don't have to continue to impact me. They don't because you are now my life. And so help me to understand, Jesus, what that's like. Help me to follow you as you followed your heavenly father as he led you. So let me just close uh, with an invitation. And it would be this. If it's been a while or, or you heard the Lord speaking to you in some way, shape, or form, something that's a counterfeit God, something that is, um, you just know it's, it's really a tug of war between you and the Lord. Like, I like it, and Jesus says, let me have it. And you're like, okay, but your hands are still on the rope. Okay, now my turn to have it back. Okay, you can have it. Now my turn. If that's kind of a bit of your spiritual life, and I just want to encourage you to make the decision to let that go and to, to join, be Dave Waddle, join up with the Lord who is leading us to places, to a life that in some ways we haven't begun to imagine. And maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Maybe you came because you got invited by a friend. You're like, well, I don't know about this. Or maybe you know some Christians. You say, I don't know about them. But what I'm hearing is speaking to me. And you want to follow Christ. I just want to invite you to make that decision. We're not going to, we've got no choir up here. Some of you are familiar with that. Whatever. Just, but just, I'm going to close in prayer. And if you just want to reconnect with the Lord who is ahead and you want to catch up, if you want to connect with him for the first time, just say yes to the Lord in both those circumstances. And then come, let me know after service if, if that's what you did. Let, let's take some time now and do that, and then I'll close this with prayer. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www dot holy trinity sv dot org